And that leads me to wonder whether we have time for this type of clean technology decoupling where every country tries to develop its own uh, source of the supply chain, its own manufacturing facilities. Do we have time for that given our climate emergency? Or should we consider the comparative advantages of each country and find ways for them to cooperate in developing those clean technologies? And in this respect, I would argue that it's the West that has led and still has a considerable lead in the innovation, in the development of the new technologies. But it's China that has that ability to manufacture at scale and also to innovate in the manufacturing process in a way that brings down the cost of these still very expensive um, next generation technologies. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. On this episode, I'll be talking to Barbara Finnamore, a senior attorney and Asia director at the Natural Resources Defense Council. She recently wrote a paper for the Oxford Energy Institute titled Clean Tech Innovation in China and Its Impact on the Geopolitics of the Energy Transition. Welcome to Energy Talks, Barbara. My pleasure to be here. Well, why don't we start our conversation with, uh, if you could explain why you wrote the study. Sure. I was asked by the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies to participate in a special issue that they just published uh, in February about the geopolitics of the energy transition. And they gave me a few topics to choose from, and I chose the topic of clean energy innovation because it really interests me. I've been working in China for over 30 years and have watched the growth of innovation in China as well as the challenges. And given the renewed interest in clean energy innovation in the United States with the Biden administration, I thought it would be really interesting to examine what is going on in China right now, as well as in the US and in Europe on clean energy innovation and that competition that is really heating up right now. Well, uh, speak. Uh, I ran across your essay for uh, Oxford Energy Institute, and it reminded me of a paragraph from the Biden climate plan that I read before the November election. I'm going to read it because it's germane to what we'll be talking about today. So here's what the plan says. Unfortunately, today the Trump administration is allowing America to fall behind in the clean energy race for the future. In 2017, China invested $3 in renewable energy for every dollar in America, giving China an edge on the technologies of tomorrow that will generate well-paying jobs. By 2030, the Biden administration will put the United States back in the driver's seat, making America the world's leader in clean energy research, investment, commercialization, manufacturing, and exports. That is exactly what your paper was talking about, the competition between China, the US, and you added uh, Europe. That's correct. That's correct. It's a sea change, as you can imagine, from the last four years under the Trump administration, when every effort was made to roll back uh, funding for research and development and put tariffs on solar panels and impede the growth and innovation of clean energy in every single way possible. 
Now, I have an observation. Uh, I will see if you agree with it. Uh, there is a, a faction in the oil and gas industry worldwide, but it's particularly strong in Canada and the United States, uh, which really believes that the energy transition is driven by ideology. It is not a thing, it's not driven by technology and capital and markets and all that. It's driven by ideology of the radical eco, you know, activists. And if that is true, then it's ideology turned into politics, green politics, which then in fact, then, then gets turned into green policy. So if you can go back and you can unwind that, unpack it and change the politics you then get the control of the government levers and you can change the policy and stop the, the energy transition and effectively preserve the oil and gas, the fossil fuel status quo. And that I think is, is essentially what was going on during the Trump administration. What do you make of that? You know, the fossil fuel industry is um, going to have to evolve if they want to survive in this net zero carbon world. There's over 120 countries that have already adopted these net zero energy goals, either for climate neutrality or for carbon neutrality. And that includes China. I don't know if you can argue successfully that the announcement by President Xi Jinping that China will become a climate neutral country by 2060 is a, a, a results from pressure by the radical environmental left. I think countries around the world are increasingly realizing that climate change is real and that it's happening now. I mean, we just finished uh, a year that was tied for the warmest year on record with 2016. We just ended uh, the warmest decade on record. There was $260 billion of damage worldwide from climate-induced severe weather impacts, threatening food security, water security, and people's health all over the world. That is real. It's not just something that's going to happen. Climate change is real and it's happening now. Well, serendipitously, uh, President uh, Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada made an announcement yesterday that is directly applicable to your paper. And what they agreed on was this comprehensive approach to climate plan and clean energy. And there is clearly an attempt here uh, and the intent by the, uh, the Biden administration to bind Canada closer to the U.S. in terms of, you know, if you've got a European block, now you've got a North American block. And I'll, I'll give you just a few examples of what they talked about. So they agreed to work together to build the necessary supply chains to make Canada and the United States global leaders in all aspects of battery development and production. And you mentioned in your paper that the that China currently leads, but Europe is right on its heels and has every intention of taking the lead. And here you have Biden, this is a, just a, a clear, he gets it and I guess Trudeau gets it. And this is their response to, to that challenge. Um, this is an example of a virtuous cycle in competition because Countries want, and blocks, like you say, the uh, uh, North America now, wants to control the new technologies of, of the future. And the supply chain is a key element of that. China already controls 
virtually every aspect of the supply chain of lithium ion batteries. And it has the potential to restrict access to those uh, minerals to other countries if it wishes. In fact, just recently, China announced that it is considering restricting access to rare earth metals that are a key uh, part of the supply chain for many clean technologies, restricting access to those to, to the US in retaliation for sales of military technology to Taiwan. This could really put a wrench in the energy transition. So it's not surprising that countries are really starting to think about how they can ensure their own supplies of the critical minerals and metals that are needed for batteries and other technologies. Now, it just occurred to me that if you see Biden's decision around the Keystone XL pipeline, because of course he canceled it as he promised he would, you can see his attention shifting from the integrated uh, fossil fuel energy system that the U.S. and Canada created over the last, you know, 60, 70 years. And now it's almost as if there's going to be another integrated industry that's around clean energy. And yeah, I think you mentioned, uh, if, if you didn't, uh, there's hydro uh, electric power coming from, uh, from Quebec into your uh, state where you live in Maine. And, and there, you know, and also from Manitoba and other hydro rich provinces, they're sending clean energy down. And that's a big part of this agreement as well. That's very good news. I think it makes sense. I think it's a win-win proposition for both countries and for the climate. Um, there are, every, in my mind, every country has its own competitive advantage. And you've just mentioned a number of ways in which Canada has uh, a competitive advantage. I just remember also when fuel cell vehicles first became uh, popular about 20 years ago, it was the Ballard Company in Canada that was really leading the way. I, I led some uh, study tours for Chinese experts to Canada to visit Ballard and learn more about what they were doing on fuel cell vehicles. So Canada's uh, interest and dominance in this technology is, is quite uh, well recognized. And in fact, China, as you may know, has determined that it is going to put a lot of resources into developing its fuel cell vehicle industry right now. So um, I feel like there's, it doesn't have to be blocks, however, Markham. It, there is room for all countries to not just compete with each other, but to find ways that are of benefit to everyone in, into accelerating our energy transition. Well, that leads me to, it's a couple of questions ahead of where I was gonna ask you about that, but let's, let's go there. Because you make the point in your conclusion, and I thought this was really insightful, is that the, the, the blocks or the countries will, will definitely compete. They're setting themselves up to be competitive. But at the same time, it's very important for, for there to be strategic cooperation. And that would mean agreements, that would mean uh, diplomacy, that would mean global institutions like the World Trade Organization that all have to be respected and, and, and made to, to function properly for this to work optimally. Have I, have I sort of summed up your conclusion correctly? Um, yes, you have. I do believe it's essential to have strategic 
cooperation as well as competition. And, and there are so many ways in which that can happen. You mentioned a number of them that are really important on the global level, international institutions, but even uh, bilaterally and multilaterally, a lot of countries and states and provinces are starting to issue targets for phasing out the internal combustion engine vehicle, for example. Now, if countries can coordinate those types of high level targets, um, that sends a signal to the automobile industry that it's in their interest to increase their investment in low zero energy vehicles because the markets are harmonized and you don't have to develop certain kinds of vehicles for one market and others for another. And that, that type of thing is well within the interest of, of every country to coordinate and harmonize. Would you say that in fact, uh, in the terms of electric vehicles, that that has already taken place and it may not have taken place formally, though you may have uh, a different view on this, but it's a lot of it has taken place in the marketplace and in the industry because all of these automakers are working in those those three you know, big markets. It's already starting to take place. And I think one of the policy decisions that China made has really made an enormous difference because China is the largest automobile market of any kind in the world. And a few years ago, they issued a regulation that said that any foreign automaker that wished to produce or sell their vehicles in China had to meet a certain percentage quota of what they call new energy vehicles, which could be all electric, hybrid, or fuel cell vehicles. Otherwise, they would not gain access to the world's largest market. And almost immediately, you saw all of the major auto manufacturers announce new investments, new lines, new types of uh, new energy vehicles that they're developing. So yes, it's already happening right now, but a lot more can be done. China was considering an outright ban on internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035, as you're seeing in some other jurisdictions, but they stopped short of that. Um, and if they were to coordinate such, uh, such announcements with other countries, I think that you would see the percentage of these zero energy vehicles just explode. What do you think the odds are that China, Europe, and North America will announce that type of strategic cooperation in the near future? Uh, I think not in the near future. We've got a situation where the United States has only just rejoined the Paris Agreement. It is not on track to meet its climate uh, commitments under the Paris Agreement. The US, I think, has a long way to go to reestablish uh, trust in its pledges and to reestablish its climate leadership before it can get other countries to work together. That said, China, President Xi Jinping has said numerous times that he believes in global environmental governance, that he believes in multilateralism. So I do think that the chances of such an announcement, for example, are greater if it is with a number of countries, including the EU, and not just the US-China, which was so fruitful in the past, but maybe not right now. 
Well, look, let's talk about uh, four key areas of innovation that you flag uh, for watching uh, as the race heats up, and they are solar power, offshore wind, batteries, and hydrogen. And what made you choose those four? Each of these technologies um, is key to the global energy transition, number one. Number two, uh, China has led by far the world in the first generation of each of these technologies. They lead the world. They have 40% uh, of all solar installed capacity, over a third of all wind global installed capacity. They lead the world by far over half of all the electric vehicles in the world and also uh, the largest producer of hydrogen. But these are first generation technologies and they're going to need breakthroughs if the cost is gonna to continue to go down, if it, they're going to need breakthroughs to uh, resolve some of the challenges that are uh, inherent in the first generation technology. So that's why I chose those four. Also because the US and Europe recognize their importance in the next stage of the energy transition and they're all clamoring to take the lead. Well, let's talk about another area where uh, China, the US and Europe will, uh, will compete. And that's uh, finance and manufacturing. And I've I interviewed uh, Professor Johan uh, Upalainen uh, from uh, Johns Hopkins University a couple months ago. And he talked about how the US had fallen behind China in terms of green financing. So financing of, of solar power and wind power, those kinds of projects. But it was imperative that it regain that lead. And it looked like, in his opinion, that Biden had correctly identified that as an issue. And I think there was an announcement of a green bank that's coming or some kind of a green funding institution. How important is, is access to finance for these various, uh, well, say the, the Americans and Canadians uh, to catch up to China? China has made it very easy, or relatively easy, I should say, to for companies to get access to financing for solar and wind. Uh, they've also developed a very comprehensive, or at least the beginnings of a very comprehensive green finance system, which is includes things like green bonds, green loans, greens and investments and so forth. And there's really, uh, like so many other things in China, due to the influence of one person, we often think of China as a monolithic country where decisions come from faceless bureaucrats, but there is one uh, fellow um, named Ma Jun uh, who really has led the way in developing a development of a green finance ecosystem, shall we say, in China. Um, the U.S. does have a long way to go to catch up. I was very pleased to see that last December, even before the Biden administration took office, there was an omnibus spending bill passed by Congress that extended the uh, uh, tax breaks for solar power and wind. And this has been one of the key problems is that these incentives are only issued for one or two years at a time. And that's not enough of a time period to really galvanize the levels of investment that are needed. And, and 
other types of incentives can be included as well, like for hydrogen. If you look at Biden's climate plan, what he wants to do is develop uh, energy storage, for example, at one-tenth the cost of lithium-ion batteries. He wants to lead the world in hydrogen development. Well, coming up with tax incentives like that and green financing mechanisms, it's going to make a huge difference because financing, you're, you are right, financing for clean technologies has been quite a struggle in the United States to date. Well, let's talk about the second one, manufacturing, because you make the point in your paper that, man, that China is the factory to the world. And I think it was 60% of all goods, if I remember correctly, are, are manufactured in China. And what that means is that, that the United States and Canada are therefore behind in terms of their manufacturing capacity. And maybe even more important, and this gets back to the Biden-Trudeau announcement, supply chains. Absolutely right. critical in terms of, of supporting growth in manufacturing is the development of the supply chains. And so what are your, uh, what are your thoughts on that? This is a complex issue, Markham, because manufacturing and mining and processing minerals for clean energy technology causes huge environmental impacts. And I believe that one of the reasons that China has attained dominance in supply chain um, mining, manufacturing, processing even more so, is that it's willing to accept those environmental risks. There used to be more of that um, manufacturing and mining going on in the United States, but those, those environmental impacts are not as tolerated, which is a good thing. Um, and so my question is number one, how realistic is it for the United States to catch up to China in manufacturing with, with its strict environmental regulations, which believe me, I think China should have and must have in order to make this sustainable in the future. Secondly, how is the US going to catch up with China in, for example, solar panel manufacturing when the average solar panel manufacturing facility in China is four times the size of the United States. I, and even developing the mines um, for critical minerals, how long is it gonna take for the US to catch up to China in its ability to provide a cost effective, um, cost competitive source of these minerals? I'm not sure that that's possible. And that leads me to wonder whether we have time for this type of clean technology decoupling where every country tries to develop its own uh, source of the supply chain, its own manufacturing facilities. Do we have time for that given our climate emergency or should we consider the comparative advantages of each country and find ways for them to cooperate in developing those clean technologies. And in this respect, I would argue that it's the West that has led and still has a considerable lead in the innovation, in the development of the new technologies. But it's China that has that ability to manufacture at scale and also to innovate in the manufacturing process in a way that brings down the cost of these still very expensive um, next generation technologies. Is there a way to combine the strategic advantages of different countries 
in a way that's going to allow us to reach net zero in time, I think you're going to need things like a very, very strong intellectual property system or intellectual property insurance mechanism that's going to make it possible for that level of cooperation. And given our political situation right now, it's going to take some doing to get there. Does the world have the institutional framework to uh, foster the kind of cooperation that you're talking about? Uh, not right now, not right now, but it's um, possible, I think. There was a um, clean, US-China Clean Energy Research Center uh, under the Obama administration that fostered collaboration between researchers, scientists, and companies in the US and China in three areas of technology, uh, carbon capture and storage, building efficiency and electric vehicles. And the very innovative part of that collaboration was that the two countries developed a mechanism for sharing the intellectual property of the technologies that were developed. So it can be done. That was at a rather small scale, but it does show that, that this type of collaboration can be done and it was quite successful. Fascinating. Um, let's get to your conclusion. I want to read some excerpts from it, uh, one of which is that Europe and the U.S. are now racing to take the lead in developing next generation technologies. And if they're racing, uh, are they, are, is China uh, likely to catch up in that innovation race? Or is, as you say, uh, China's role likely to be in the manufacturing and Europe and the US lead in innovation? What's your take? Well, what we've seen over the years in those first generation wind and solar and electric vehicle technologies is that China basically acquired the new technologies from the West. And whether that was from uh, licensing or you know, buying the technology or, or acquiring it through forced joint ventures or intellectual property theft, whatever, uh, they took those technologies and then they brought them to scale. It's not clear to me. I think that's a good model with given those strong intellectual property protections I talked about, but I'm not sure whether that type of collaboration is possible now. So you've got something like the um, electrolyzers for producing green hydrogen from renewable energy. China already leads in the traditional alkaline uh, electrolyzers, but those are not as effective as the PEM electrolyzers in using in, in producing green hydrogen. The West already has that technology, but it's extremely expensive because nobody's manufacturing it at scale. But if China, China is considering trying to develop that own technology internally, it's going to take a lot of time because even though China is growing in its ability to innovate, it still lags behind the West. And similarly, the West wants to become its own manufacturer of hydrogen, but I doubt that it's going to be able to get to the requisite scale in time and to be able to bring down the cost. So that's why in my paper, I said I wasn't sure who's going to win this race, and how long it's going to take. Well, we talked earlier about how there has to be competition and strategic cooperation at the same time. And 
I think it's fair to say that the Trump administration's approach to multilateral relationships, trade diplomacy, such such as it was, uh, was not conducive to, wasn't applicable to what the, the issue that, that we're dealing with today. Can Biden do something to restore the relationships and the processes in in a timely fashion, or is this a have things been so damaged that it will take you know years and years and years to fix? Um, it will take time to fix. I do not think it will take years and years to fix. Biden uh, appointed Senator John Kerry to be his international climate envoy, um, and Kerry gave a speech. Uh, very recently, in which he said he believed that despite the tensions between the U.S. and China, both countries share an interest in collaboration on climate change, and that type of discussion should proceed independently of all other discussions and diplomacy in areas where the two countries differ so markedly. The trouble was the next day the Chinese foreign minister disagreed, and he said, no, you cannot separate out climate change from all these other issues, they have to be considered together. Um, but what I've seen in my 30 years of working in China is that the views of the foreign ministry are often more hard line than that of the government agencies and the uh, researchers and others on the ground. And so I suspect that you're going to find ways in which you're going to see ways in which this cooperation does begin, perhaps as more of a bottom up way. And Biden himself has uh, has announced that he's going to have an international climate meeting, uh, hosting it in uh, April on Earth Day. And hopefully that will begin the process of bringing uh, the countries back together on climate and finding areas of mutual interest. And it may be that it's the multilateral approach that's more effective. Barbara, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate it. But plenty of uh, very valuable insights here. And uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.